0: Open your Bibles with me. We're in Mark chapter 4. This is a one-off sermon. Um, I'm titling the sermon Soul Ground, as will be explained in just a little bit. Next week, we will then kick off a series that I'm calling Joy to the World, and we are going to be working through the book of Philippians through the Christmas season and then wrap it around into the new year. Uh, we will pause on Christmas Eve in Philippians chapter 2 with that great hymn from the Apostle Paul where he talks to us about the humility of Christ. And of course, one form of Christ's humility was his coming. He took on the form of a servant. He took on flesh. He became one of us. So Mark chapter 4. I am fairly certain that I almost left ministry the summer of 2019. Uh, This was the year of my sabbatical. I was not expecting to go through this thought process at the time, though I had been told from other pastors that sometimes on sabbatical, you go through some emotional turmoil. Uh, Christians... Have been talking about this emotional turmoil that people can that Christians can go through um, all through the years in our church tradition. Uh, sometimes it's called the dark night of the soul. Uh, the psalmist sometimes speaks to themselves in the Psalter and says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Uh, for me, I had all the indications of spiritual unhealth. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you've been here. Uh, One thing that had happened was I became addicted to my cell phone. I was numbing my mind by scrolling endlessly on this little addictive device that we carry in our pocket every single day. I felt withdrawn relationally. Um, I struggled to connect with my family. I didn't want to talk to people. If you know anything about me, that's not kind of my way. I'm a 9 out of 10 on the extrovert scale. I love people struggling to read my Bible, struggling to pray. I had set apart a list of 10 books that normally would spiritually encourage me, books on missionary biographies, pastoral leadership and ministry, and it had the entirely opposite effect on me. Now, I have to say this, sometimes when you go through something like this for the first time, you don't even really have language for it. What in the world is happening to me? Why is this happening to me? Again, it's not like myself. I am vigorous towards life. I love life. I'm generally in disposition a happy person. I have a drive in life. You know, upon reflection, I actually think that that may be one of the things that was happening. Uh, When you have positive attributes, they also sometimes have a dark side. My dark side happens to come in the form of my drive at times. Sometimes I can become so driven that my life gets consumed by my outer life and my inner life starts getting neglected. Now, maybe I'm not alone on this. Uh, Have you ever thought about that dichotomy about your life? You have an outer life, you have an inner life at the same time. The outer life is the public facing you. It's the visible you. It's your accomplishments, your work, your reputation, your need to feel recognized. Um, In 2019, I had been through a journey of four years where my outer life had grown significantly from what it was prior to that. I had a growing family, three beautiful kids. Uh, the kids are doing well, the family's doing well. I became the senior pastor of this respectable church in Osterville called Osterville Baptist Church. And all the while, while this outer life is growing, the inner life, is starving. In the summer of 2019, I hit a spiritual wall. So let me ask you a difficult question. What is your inner life? I mean, really, what is that? I know we're Christians, and we all talk about the inner life, and we're supposed to be the experts on the inner life. Most basically, when we talk about the inner life, we're talking about your thoughts and hopes and wishes. We're talking about the place where you spiritually connect with God. We refer to this place as your soul. Now, this part of your life is invisible. It's so easy to neglect it because guess what? People applaud your outer life, but no one applauds when you are taking time for your inner life, not even when you're a young pastor who's supposed to be the subject matter expert. Recently, I listened to um, John Ortberg's book, Soul Keeping, and he shared a similar experience to my summer of 2019. His outer world had greatly expanded. He was pastoring a church now that had a staff that was larger than the attendance of the previous church that he was pastoring. His outer world was so visible and so lauded. He, in this new role, in this new capacity, he was someone people thought highly of now. They kind of thought his opinion mattered. You know, you think when your outer world expands in this sort of way that your inner world would take the ride with it, but he recognized that not everything was right. So he goes out with his mentor, Dallas Willard, and he says to him, why am I not happier now that I'm getting to do what is in many ways a dream job? How can my private self flourish no matter what my public self is going through? Well, Willard says for that, we'd have to talk about the care of your soul. Okay. Ortberg's honest. Um, I work at church where my job involves saving souls, but if someone asked me, I'd have a hard time of saying what exactly that is. Uh, Isn't that just a word we throw a lot around to sound religious? Willard says this. Brother John, why is there such value and mystery in your existence? The really deep reason is because of this tiny, fragile, vulnerable, precious thing about you called your soul. You are not just a self, you are a soul. He goes back to Genesis, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. The Hebrew for that word is ruah, and you can hear the breathing, the breath of life of God. He says you are a soul made by God, made for God and made to need God, which means you were not made to be self-sufficient. Have you ever given much thought to what Willard is saying here? I mean, did you know that the state of your soul actually controls your overall well-being as a person? The state of your soul, and when you neglect your soul, it actually affects you in every domain of your life, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, even physically, I would argue. So how are we to understand this? Well, I want to put this graphic on the screen. We're not going to take a long time unpacking this, but this is just a helpful little diagram. Some theologians might draw this a little differently but a helpful diagram to help us understand the anatomy, the spiritual anatomy of the person. You begin with this inner circle, which is the will. And this is that part of us that has the capacity to choose right versus wrong, which direction I'm going to head in life, whether or not I will do what God says to do. And you move from there to your mind. This is where your thoughts and feelings and values and conscience resides. And then your body. This is your little power pack. This is where your will and your mind have a little bit of control, a little bit of sovereignty. You have body language. You have actions, facial expressions. And then you move from there to the soul. The soul... I would argue, integrates the whole body, mind, will. The soul, when it is healthy, when it is well-ordered, it causes you as a person to experience overall harmony. This is when you're connected to God. This is when you're connected to other people at a soulful level. This is what it's like to be healthy at the soul level. So here's our problem today, though. We have replaced the word soul for the word self. I think about myself all the time. But the soul is a different thing. The soul is that part of me that is under the care and the connection of God. And when I am unaware of that, I am not communing with the one who actually breathed life into me. The soul is not the self. Now, with all of this in mind, I actually want to take us to a parable that is a parable about your soul. And this parable, I would argue, is one of the most important parables of all the parables. Because if you don't understand this parable, Jesus says you're not going to understand any of the other parables. We're going to look at this parable through the lens of Mark chapter 4. So here we have Jesus talking to a crowd and his disciples And he leaves them perplexed because he talks about a farmer and the farmer's scattering seeds. And you would say that as he's scattering seeds, he's doing this generously. We might even argue that he is being a little wasteful. The seeds flying everywhere. Some falls on the road. Birds are picking up that seed. Some falls in really shallow soil. Other seed falls into the, the soil that has not yet been weeded, but then some of it falls into this right kind of soil, this well-tended soil that produces world-class results. So when the disciples are away from the crowd, they privately question Jesus. They're like, what in the world did you mean when you were saying all of that? And I get where they're coming from because no one wants to look stupid in front of other people. And sometimes, things are hard to understand. I was listening recently to Elon Musk talk about lift, and he's doing it effortlessly. He's talking about the laws of physics effortlessly, and the longer he talks, the more I come to the realization that I am just too stupid to understand what he's saying right now. Well, the nice thing about that is... I don't need to understand how lift works. I just need lift to work when I'm flying. But that's not the case with this parable. Again, Jesus said this to his disciples. If you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all of the other parables? So we've got to listen closely to what he says here. Let me read his interpretation. This is chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 14 through 20. He says the farmer plants seed by taking God's word to other. The seed that fell on the path represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and the desire for other things. So no fruit is produced. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has been planted. Now, as you think about parables, how do you interpret these things? How do you understand these things? I want to give you a simple principle, All right. I apply this when I interpret parables. The simplest explanation is generally the right one. Okay? In other words, when you are interpreting parables, keep it simple. Don't read too much between the lines. Consider all the elements that are expressed, analyze those, and that gives you a more expanded understanding of the parable. So, in this one, we have three elements, right? We have a farmer, we have seed, and we have soil. The farmer is Jesus who is actively pursuing people. The seed is his word. It's the gospel message. It's his teaching. When it takes root, It produces transformative effect in the inner person of of a person, which then produces this fruit, which is external, what we see a person doing as a result of the seed. And here's the truth. This parable tells us that the seed is always intending to produce fruit in you. So what is fruit? Well, fruit is Jesus accomplishing his Purposes through you. Like I said, this is simple. This is what he wants to do. What is Jesus' purpose? Well, we get told that in the scriptures the Son and man came to seek and to save the lost. God became flesh, entered the world, took on flesh because he loves lost souls. He cares. And he wants to radically transform your inner world so that you can become the salt and light of Jesus to others. Notice as you look at this parable that there are two things that are constant, the farmer's constant and the seed. Jesus always wants to save lost souls, and he always liberally gives his word so that people can hear the message. So what's different? Well, it's the soil. That's the variable. In fact, as you consider this parable, I want to suggest that there's really only two states of soil that we see. We see closed, unproductive soil, doesn't produce fruit. And then we see open soil that is vibrant and alive and producing fruit on a scale that is atypical at best, right? It is highly productive, supernatural results. Here's how you could understand this idea of soil. Replace the word soil with the word soul, and now you're starting to understand what the Lord is telling us through this parable. This parable is about your soul ground, the state of your soul. The receptivity of your soul to what God is doing. Let me just say this to you this morning. As we make our way through this, and any other sermon that you listen to, you should constantly be having a conversation with the Holy Spirit. Lord, what do you want to say to me through this text? What do I need to understand about myself so that I can be? that vibrant light of Jesus that you are calling me to be. So let's take a look at the closed soil. I want to suggest that the first soil described to us, the first soul ground, is the busy soul. When you think about this soul, it's described as a footpath that has been beaten down. So the seed never has a chance to penetrate the ground because the soil is constantly being trampled by a buzz of activity. This provides Satan the opportunity to kind of swoop in and take the word away. And I believe that this then is a metaphor for busyness. Think about your own life, and maybe you've been here too as a Christian. Uh, Your life was just so frantic and frenetic that that there was just never time to sit and really take in the word of God. It felt like every time you looked at scripture, it was just words on a page, and every time you prayed, it was just words hitting the ceiling. Corey Tenboon says this, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. It's so true. There's a finished proverb that says that God did not create hurry. Busyness is harmful to your soul because it takes you into this state of self-preoccupation. You never really have time to experience any of the depth and meaning of Scripture because you're always just kind of glossing over it at the surface. You can't practice the virtues like love think about love. When you look at the Bible, this is the most important virtue described to us in the kingdom of God. We're told to love God. We're told to love others. But what I've come to realize about love is this, that love is just painfully time-consuming. Wait, you, you mean I have to slow down and do something for this person right now? I have to stop and hear them? I've got bigger and better things to do with my time right now. I'm I'm moving along. But here's the thing I can't practice love if I don't have time for it. I don't even recognize my need for it. There's a Japanese theologian, when he speaks of God, he refers to God as a three mile an hour God. I love that. He says that God walks slowly because God is love, and love has a speed. It's an inner speed, a spiritual speed. The soul was not made to rush. You can't rush a devotion. Come on. I read a verse today, and I moved on. What are you going to do with that? No, the soul likes to digest and devour. It longs to listen to the word of God and meditate upon it. Rush boxes out God's process for your soul. Everything that we do to nourish our soul takes time. Think about gratitude. Can you be grateful while you're in a state of rush? I can't. In fact, for me to be grateful, I have to slow down and really think about things and start taking inventory. What about awe and wonder over God's creation? You know, God gives us these daily gifts like the sunrise and the sunset and walks in the crisp winter air and all kinds of things like that, and we don't take the time to drink it in. The soul moves at a certain pace. It was never made to rush. The soul was made to walk in the cool of the day with the three mile an hour God. Here's another soil ground, soul ground. This one's not entirely closed off. Jesus says this ground has no depth. And this would make sense to these Palestinian farmers because there was a lot of soil that was thin in nature, two inches or three inches, and then there was this limestone um, underneath it. So what would happen to the seed? Well, when the seed germinated, it would shoot its roots down, but it couldn't shoot them down far enough to be refreshed by water. So when the sun beats down, it withers and dies. And I think the metaphor is pretty simple here. Jesus says that the sun's going to beat down on your life. What does he call this? Problems and persecutions. And if your soul doesn't have depth, how are you going to thrive when you're not being refreshed spiritually? Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 42 says it like this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And this psalmist is writing this as he is being taken away as a captive into exile. He had achieved a depth of soul that he craved God. God when God felt far away. You know what the problem with our world today is, is that the world conspires against your soul to keep you at a shallow level, to live a superficial life. Uh, Richard Foster says that superficiality is the curse of our age. We have lost the art of going deep in relationships. So how do you learn to go deep deep in the age of superficiality? Well, Jesus tells us the answer in John 15, 5. He says, those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. What does it mean to remain in Jesus? How do I do that? Well, I've got to think about my relationship with Jesus entirely differently than I think about everything else in my world. You know, following Jesus is just not another activity in a sea of activities that I find myself in. Loving Jesus is not just another emotion among all the emotions that I feel in this life. He is the center of my relational need. Everything about my life must revolve around that consistency, that relationship, and the only way to achieve depth in relationship is to be consistent and to meaningfully engage. So this is why we talk about habits in the Christian life. Why do I need to form habits? Why do I need to open my Bible in a consistent basis? Why do I need to pray? Why do I need to come to church and be in fellowship with other believers? Well, it's not because God wants you to check spiritual boxes so that he will not be angry with you. No, habits are cultivating your soul to crave him more. When you open up the word of God and have a devotion with the scriptures, your soul is being fed because God's speaking to you through the word. Prayer, difficult, yeah, to cultivate a habit of prayer, but so much needed because that's how the soul communes with the God of the universe. You know, Communication is like the foundation of all relationship, isn't it? And when we start talking to one another, sometimes we're just talking, but other times we're actually communicating. In fact, when I walk young married couples through premarital counseling, I like to read this little quote to them. In your marriage, nothing is easier than talking and nothing is more difficult than communicating. You think it's easy to communicate with your spouse? Well, it's, it's just as difficult to communicate with God. You have to build that relationship over time. What about fellowship? Why do I need to be in the habit of being with the people of God? Remember, love thrives in specificity. The Holy Spirit of God has placed us into a body of Christ and I need to be specific with the way that I love the body of Christ. I can't love it in general. I have to love the specific people that God puts me in relationship with and sometimes they're not easy to love. But the more I do that, the more the Holy Spirit is forming me. Here's the deal. Shallow souls are relationally starved, but deep souls pursue God at a deep relational level. So let's talk about this third soil now, this third soul ground. We have the um, busy soul, we have the shallow soul, but what about the cluttered soul? See, Jesus describes in verse 19, this soul that is too cluttered to produce fruit. There's three things that are cluttering this soul, the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things. It's almost like desire is the Velcro of the human soul. So things that we desire, they start sticking to us. And when they're the wrong things, when they're not the Jesus-centered things, they actually weigh my soul down. And I can mistake this weightiness for being my life. I can get totally externally focused. My success, my reputation, my activity, my lifestyle. All the meanwhile is my soul's being weighed down It's getting numb. It's suffering. The inner world is falling apart. Now, I sometimes wonder if one way that God gets our attention when we're in this state is actually through worry. I'm serious. Because here's what happens when I start worrying. I know that I am somehow off kilter now, right? Because scripture tells us over and over again, do not worry, worry for nothing, be anxious for nothing, but instead trust that God's going to take care of you. When I worry, I am allowing my emotions to bully my soul. I am fixating on what is wrong instead of fixating on what is right. I like what this author David Murray says. Murray says that many of us Who wouldn't dream of viewing God's word in a false way or distorted way? Think nothing of viewing God's world in a false or distorted way. You do that? Do you sometimes analyze to the nth degree all the things that are wrong in your world? What's right? What's right? If you have a relationship with Jesus, that's right. If you have people in your life who love you, that's right. If you have your basic daily needs being met, that's right. The only way to alleviate the clutter of worry is to start focusing on all the ways that God is alive and vibrant and working in your world. So when you think about the soul ground, now we can kind of get to an idea of what does it mean for the soul to be healthy? Well, The soul that's healthy is moving at the pace of love. Uh, The soul that's healthy is achieving relational depth with God, and it is living a clutter-free sort of existence. It's not all wrapped up in desire. I was thinking about the state of my soul in 2019. And as I was analyzing these soul grounds from Mark chapter 4, I have to say, my soul was cluttered. The clutter was choking out my ability to connect with God and to see the things that God was doing in my life. I had become downcast. I had said within my soul, perhaps it would be better if I just quit. You know what? When I got into that state and that thought process, God, Kind of came in and he intervened and he said something to my soul at that time. He said, You can't fix this kind of problem by quitting. Hmm. But quitting's easy. It's easy. It provides temporary release. But the problem is, if I quit, I still have to live with the inner mess that I've created. I can't run away from that mess so then god starts saying things like how about we go home and we work on changing you together now change is a scary word we don't like that word but we all need change if we want to get spiritually healthy and let me just say this much of the change that you need and i need is not externally focused it's not a change of scenery it's not a change of relationships it's not a change of vocation those kinds of changes can be so alluring because it seems like the quick fix for this long-incoming problem. I see a lot of people change: changing from marriages, changing from churches, changing from friendships. And the longer I've been a pastor and the more that I've experienced this life, the more I come to realize a lot of times that's actually because their soul's hurting. And they're desperate. Maybe there's bitterness, maybe there's clutter, busyness, something else. But there's no quick, thick solution for a hurting soul. The change always comes in the form of change of rhythms, change of desires. Change of attitude, change of priorities. You know what God showed me when I went through the process of change? He loves our souls. He loves your soul. You're precious to Him. He wants you to be fruitful. But our definition of fruit is often wrong. We think of our fruit as our accomplishments. What he wants to do is make you into a certain kind of person. He wants to make you into the person who is the love, the joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control of Christ. So I asked you a question How is your soul ground this morning? And if it's not good, are you ready for the change that you need? Let's pray. Father, we are just so thankful for the teaching ministry of Jesus and for these parables. We come to the realization through your word that we are more than just a a set of desires or a body or a mind. We are a soul, a precious soul a soul that you breathed into us. It's part of the mystery of us being made in the image of God, and you want our souls to be healthy, vibrant, alive, satisfied in Jesus. I pray for us, Lord, that we would grow deeper as a people of God and That we would seek your face and your purposes and that that in turn would produce the kind of fruit that you want in us. We pray this in Jesus' name.